Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. It's great to see everybody today. Full crowd here, first hour. It's almost like you have something to get to this afternoon. Those of us who are Cowboys fan could care less uh, about it. Yeah, we just live in our shame. But the good news is we're used to it. It comes around every year about this time. So uh, that part of it. We are glad to be here today. And uh, I am feeling better. I still am struggling with a cough. So I brought something up with me in case I get to coughing. I brought coffee. I better be clear. Some of you are going, oh, what's your cough syrup? Uh, It's coffee. And, uh, but I am feeling better with it and I'm, I'm glad that we can engage today. We are thrilled that you're here. If you're new here, uh, I just want to personally welcome you. My name's Tim Lundy. I serve as senior pastor here and uh, we're excited about what God's doing here. I'm excited about this series that we're in. I, I don't know about you, diving back into Acts, it just feels so relevant to what God's doing in the life of our church right now. And so this week, We're gonna be in Acts chapter two. In fact, if you got your Bibles, you can turn there. And I'd encourage you, if you wanna use one of the blue ones in the room, uh, 10,081 right in there, you can turn to it in Acts chapter two. And as we dive in, I mean, if you've been a part of the church, especially if you've been on a part of different denominations or groups, we all recognize how significant this passage is, how significant this day is, the birth of the church, as, as the power of God's unleashed through it. And it's a passage filled with so many different details. We're gonna cover most of it today through verse 41. And so there'll be parts, that's why it's good if you have your Bible out, I'll just summarize sections of it. But, but here's the key, because there's so many details, because there's so many different theological points and things that people debate about and drift into, I think it's especially important today. Remember the quote by Stephen Covey, the the leadership expert? He he had one quote that I think is so significant and it really applies to this. He said, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, as simple as that may sound, it is so significant. And especially in a passage like this where, man, we can chase this or that, What I don't want us to lose is the main thing. In fact, just to give you a little bit of background, you know, we saw in Acts 1, Jesus met with his disciples. He said, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out in you. You're going to be baptized in the Spirit. And when you do, you're going to receive power and you will be witnesses. And this came at a significant time in the history and the life of Israel and how they would celebrate. This day, Pentecost, it gets that name Penta because it's 50 days after Passover. It's 50 days after these two significant festivals that would be in Jerusalem at this time. And these festivals were so big because people would travel, Jews would travel from all over Israel. In fact, God fears different nations. People would travel from around the world. The the population of Jerusalem during each of these festivals would go from about 50,000 to 200,000. That's how many people would come in for it. And and if you look at it, the way that God set up both both of these festivals, they pointed to what he was gonna do. In fact, if you remember the, the festival of when the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all gathered there. When Passover came, The whole focus of Passover was a sacrificial lamb. 
Every family would come together. They would have a lamb. The lamb was representative of the sacrifice for them. They put the blood over the doorpost, rehearsing again and remembering in Israel that that was accomplished. And so this lamb, in fact, if you've never been to a Passover Seder, I would encourage you, we'll have one later this spring. So it's an incredible opportunity for you to see that in this ancient festival, God was pointing again and again that Jesus was gonna come and he was the sacrificial lamb. There's a whole point of Passover. And we know it was that Passover weekend that Jesus was crucified as the lamb. Now you go 50 days later, you come to Pentecost and you go, what was the whole focus of Pentecost? What was the whole focus? Because they were there for the, the festival of the weeks. And this whole festival is focused on the harvest. So when they came, the Jews, they would gather around, they would come together and they would celebrate the harvest that we receive. And in an agrarian economy, the harvest was everything. And it was their chance to celebrate. It was a fun festival. It was a place where, again, they looked at and they go, man, what we have brought in, the fruit of this harvest is all due to you, God. Guys, it's not by accident that God lined it up this way. That, that when they were gathered before, it was around Passover to point to what Jesus did on the cross. And now they're gonna gather again and they're in the city to focus on the harvest. And remember what Jesus said? Hey, when I pour out my spirit, what's gonna happen? You're gonna be a witness. You're gonna be about the harvest. And so as the disciples are gathered there at this time, at this time of Pentecost, we're gonna see the coming of the Holy Spirit so that this harvest can happen. In fact, let's read through this, this just coming of the Spirit and there's a lot of different details. I'll walk you through the symbols a little bit so we can understand it. But as we read through it, here's what I don't want us to do because invariably we can say, oh yeah, it's about the harvest and then immediately we go, well, I wanna talk about the gifts of the Spirit and I wanna talk about what happened with that. And we break it out into a lot of different details as opposed to what was the main thing. What was the whole point of the weekend and the festival and what's going on? Harvest, harvest. And so watch with me and let's read together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So this is a little bit outside of our norm. This, this wind that comes through is so loud, it, everyone heard it. People in the city hear it. This isn't like this gentle breeze, like, oh man, that feels so good. <laughs> it, it, I mean, for those of us who grew up in the Midwest or the South, like I did, um, if you've ever lived in tornado country, you know what mighty wind sounds like. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it other than you just feel the power of it. Tornado can come through and just clear out a whole swath with it. And when it comes, it sounds like a train. If you're close enough to it, it sounds like a train coming. And uh, if we had people that visited from other parts of the country, like California, I mean, it's terrifying. We got used to it. I always laugh because I have people from the South. They'll, they'll say to me now, how can you live in California with all those earthquakes? And I'm like, we very rarely have earthquakes. You have tornadoes all the time. 
I'll take this trade off with it. And, and so as they're there, this mighty rushing, powerful wind comes and then fire comes with it. It says it's like a tongue of fire, a flame that rested over them. And, and as it's there, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so as you look at this, they began speaking out. Now they've attracted attention and they're speaking with other tongues. Now notice what this it defines what, what it was. There were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So they're there for the festival. They all come rushing with this. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. This is really clear because the tongues that are described here, this unique event with it, where suddenly as the disciples are speaking, man, they could all understand them. And they could understand them in their own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? Don't they live and they're from the North in this? How is it that we hear each one of us in his native language? And then Luke is now gonna describe, remember I told you he is details, details, details. He's gonna give you the details of where all these people are from. We won't go through the whole list, but if you read it, it's everywhere from the Roman empire, from Egypt and that, they've come together with it. And all of them in all these different countries they understand. In fact, they said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? We've not seen something like this. But others mocking said, I love this, they're filled with new wine. So you got some, they're, they're amazed at it and others, they just write it off, they're drunk. That's what it means to be filled with new wine. You, you've been drinking a lot. And so he says, they're drunk. That's all that's going on with it. Now, if you look at it, because this is a very unique event, in the same way the coming of Christ into the world was a unique event, the coming of the Holy Spirit's a unique event. And you're not gonna see this duplicated in ways in it as this event is described. It'll happen in parts and you see these miracles around the world. But remember, we're focused on the main thing. It's about this harvest. And so as you look at this, you do see in it these symbols, they tell us something about the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important because we have so much confusion about the Spirit. Um, when you think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, and maybe here, if you're in this camp, a lot of people, you say God the Father, you kind of have an image in your mind, we, we, a father image. Sometimes it's a wrong image. We, we picture an old man, kind of long beard and he's got a smile. Um, and, and then God, the son, we probably have the best image in our mind of, because we've got the stories about Jesus of the three persons of the Trinity. He chose to take on a human body. So we most relate to him. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy spirit, a lot of times he's described almost as an it. He's a him. He's a person. He's fully God in every way. That, that's the unique thing about Christianity. We have three persons who are one God. And there's a part of it that just stretches our thinking in it. With the coming of this person, the Holy Spirit, we get these symbols to understand him more. If you look at it, look at the first symbol is wind. And as I showed you in the passage emphasizes, it, it's a, a symbol of his presence, 
But notice it's, it's power. It says with the rushing wind, this powerful wind that you see in it, the power that's come. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't control him, but you see the impact of what he's done. And, and that's one of the key things here. And I would say this because he's a spirit, we can't always, you can't point to him and go, oh, there's the Holy Spirit. But you see the impact of the Holy Spirit on the world, on people, on their lives. You'll see it on the church. You'll describe it. Paul especially describes, and he gives gifts to the church. He empowers your life. He does all these ministries in our life. But at this point, all he is showing is, man, God is coming with such power and this mighty wind and this rushing noise that it draws attention to it. And we see his power. Then you combine that where Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, you see it, but you don't know where it comes from. Same with the spirit. Combine that with fire. And again, fire often in scripture for the children of Israel, it was a symbol of God's presence. Remember when they're going through the wilderness, there was that pillar of fire, this representation of God. And with fire, if you read this, I mean, Hebrews says our God's a consuming fire. There's a part of this fire that emphasizes the purity. In fact, it's interesting. If you read one of the greatest days in the history of the nation of Israel was this dedication of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was so magnificent. And Solomon, when they're launching, when they're inaugurating in that, he stands up and just does this mighty prayer. And in the prayer, he, he, he says, hey, this may be glorious, but you're more glorious, God. Who are we without you? And at the conclusion of his prayer, look, look what happens. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice. And then notice this, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This symbol of God's presence now in his temple was his fire. And, and part of what that fire did is it burnt up the sacrifice. It was a symbol that this sacrifice that was made for our sin, God burns it up through his presence. It's a symbol of his presence and his glory that were there. And so to make it real clear to followers, they've just, they're being baptized in the spirit. They look up and above each other's heads, they see this, this symbol of fire and, and they recognize what God's doing. Oh man, this is God's presence here. This is God's spirit here. And notice it's God's purity. One of the core roles of what the Holy Spirit does in our life is make us pure before God. He makes us holy. It's right there in his name, by the way, in case you missed it. He's the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean he was holier than Jesus or the Father, but it's a core role that he comes to make us holy. He comes in, in every part of our life. He examines us, not to scrutinize, not to judge us. He knows if you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit, he knows whatever is in your life that's been paid for by Jesus but he helps you to live in the purity that God's called you to. It's the difference between, have you ever had a nosy neighbor who kind of looks around your house? I remember when we were kids, uh, we, we had this one woman down the street. She was friends with my grandmother. We, we knew her and uh, nice lady in a lot of ways, really nosy. And she would make it a point, I'm not lying, she'd, she'd wait till my mom was gone and she'd come over to our house. And then she'd just kind of come on in. We knew her and everything. And she'd walk around 
And then she wanted to see what was in all the closets and all the spaces. And I'll never forget as a kid, she kind of opened it. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, she'd find where all the junk was. And you, you always had this sense. I mean, she'd say the same thing every time. She'd kind of open it up. It was a messy closet. She'd hmm. And kind of shut it. And I remember that as a kid. And I think sometimes we think that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's kind of, you know, he's nosing around in your life, judging your stuff. When really he, he is the opposite. Now he wants to open the closets, but not to judge it and turn his nose up at it. But he says, hey, why don't we do something about this? Why are you holding on to this? There's a difference between somebody that's judging you or a friend. You ever had a friend that comes over and sometimes you can do it at somebody else's house. It's what's easier or at your own house. It's hard to clean it up, but at somebody else you go, yeah. I, I, you know why? You're not sentimental about the stuff. And so you open up closet, you go, why, why are you holding on to all this? Let's deal with this. And, and a core thing that the Holy Spirit does is he comes in our life and he goes, hey, quit getting so sentimental about your sin. Why are you holding on to that? You, you, you don't want that to be part of your life anymore. Not out of judgment, but out of empowering us to be what he's called us to be. And, and then the, the third one, and this is the one that gets debated the most, is this tongues. Now, what was the purpose of the tongues? Notice in the passage, proclamation. So they could share what was going on to languages they could understand. And, and I say this because this is the part where theologically we, we could chase a, a bunch of different things. I, I would just say, and I'll summarize in this, we confuse often what's happening in Acts chapter two with the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues, Paul talks about it, especially when he's writing the church. And what he's recognizing in that is, Everyone, as soon as the Holy Spirit, you're baptized, you're in him. As soon as that moment of salvation, whether you realize it or not, you have a spiritual gift as well or spiritual gifts that are empowered by God. And he goes through the different ones. There's mercy and there's teaching, there's leadership. The gift of helps in this. Other places, the gift of administration, the gift of giving. Some of you don't even realize, man, you have the gift of giving. That's why you love. I mean, you are empowered in a way. And I think people that have the gift of giving and exercise it, God does bless them because they're using that gift in that way. In the same way as he's going through the gift, he also says there's these sign gifts, there's gift of prophecy, there's gift of tongues and a gift of interpretation of tongues. And if you read it and study it, it's, it's not talking about tongues that I have the ability to walk outside and people can understand, I understand their language, they understand what I'm saying. It's talking about a spiritual tongues. Some say it's the tongue of angels. Paul talks about, I speak of tongues of men and angels with that. It's a spiritual gift. Now, I was taught all the way back in Bible school, oh man, those gifts, they disappeared at that time. I don't believe that. I believe those gifts are active, but, but I also don't believe this. And maybe you were taught this. I don't believe every Christian's supposed to have that gift. And, and a lot of times this point in Acts that people point to and they go, see, when the baptism of the spirit comes, then they spoke in tongues and they plot. It's always unique to me because I've never heard anybody say, you, if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, you will always have a tongue of fire over your head. Or you'll always have a tornado come through. We don't hold on to those two. So, so let me be clear because we could go, man, sideways on it. 
there's some in our church, man, you practice the gift of tongues. That's a gift God has given. And so I, I think it's a unique gift. It's given to certain people. When it's to be practiced publicly in the church, Paul says there's always somebody of a gift of interpretation that goes with that because no one's gonna understand it apart from that. That's how I know it's not the same as this. This was a gift so that people could understand. And so the mark at this point, and remember it's the main thing, that when the spirit came upon his church in a miraculous way on this day, and you're gonna see it a couple of times again when it comes to different people groups, but it's this remarkable way that God is able to enable them to communicate this gospel message across different languages. Why do I say that? Because the main thing was to be a witness, to be about a harvest. And, and, and what I would say for us, sometimes I get discouraged because there's disagreement about spiritual gifts and there's things that we can disagree about in that. And there's a place for that. There's part of it we don't understand completely. But sometimes we'll spend more time focused on the disagreement than we do on the reason he came, which is about sharing the good news. That was the key thing that Jesus said this day was gonna be about, this proclamation. That's what he told his disciples. What did he say? When you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be, and you could put a lot of reasons there that are good things, but he said, let me tell you what the main thing is. You will be my witnesses. And it's gonna take the whole planet. And in fact, to get the whole thing launched, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna bring people from all over the planet in one place in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I'm gonna enable them to share this good news like never before. And so Peter stands up and at most of the rest of the passage, he stands up and delivers a sermon, a sermon like Peter's never delivered before because now it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he's gonna walk through this sermon and tell them, hey, let me tell you what you need to know from this. And if you look at it with Peter's sermon, Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk. First, he wants to clarify, no one's drunk here. I love his explanation for why they're not, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. What are you saying? It's only 9 a.m. He's like, seriously, guys, we're drunk at 9 a.m.? It's kind of funny to me. You'd think you'd go, drunk? We're too pious to be that. He goes, no, it's just, it's early in the day. So don't accuse us of that. But let me tell you what you're seeing now was was uttered through the prophet Joel. And, and now, again, remember, this is a primarily Jewish audience or the people that came from around the world. They're there to worship because they believe what God's revealed in what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures at that time. And so he's going to use those scriptures to go, hey, this is this new thing, but it's a part of God's thing that he was planning all along. And, and so he's telling them, why is this happening? First of all, you're, you're going, man, why this day? Why is it happening? And the first part he says, well, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And so he talks the, from verse 17 through 21, 
he quotes a prophecy from Joel. And in the prophecy, Joel describes events of this new age. Joel says, in the last days, you're gonna see things. One, you're gonna see the spirit poured out. And men and women and young and old are gonna prophesy. There's gonna be this scripture poured out like never before. You're gonna see expressions like never before. That frankly is gonna cut across all different categories like never before. He says, that'll happen in the last days. And and then he says, and then there's also going to be events where the the sky turns red, the moon turns red, and you're going to see the darkness across the universe and all these kind of crazy physical manifestations in the universe. And he describes all of these as part of the last days. And, And so what he's pointing out is with the coming of the spirit, it launched a new age and it's the age actually called the last days. We've been living in the last days since that day, because this launched that. Now, some of you go, wait, Tim, the last days before Christ returns. If you read through the New Testament, notice how many times they talk about, man, we're in the last days, we need to be prepared. And you might look up and go, "Uh, last days? We're 2000 years later. What happened to the whole last days? Well, I'll remind you what Peter said. He said a thousand years is like a day to God. So in God's estimation, we're two days in. Seriously. The the point of it is not to define how long the age, but to show this is a distinct age. And at the beginning of this age, it's almost like he gives two parentheses. At the beginning of this age and throughout, you're gonna see this miraculous prophecy. You're gonna see the spirit poured out in it. And then at the end, the other end of the parentheses, you're, you're gonna see physical events that happen in the sky and happen on our planet right before Christ returns. And and so the prophecy describes what will happen both at beginning and during, but also marks out what will happen at the end. Now here's the key though. The last verse of Joel's prophecy, the last verse that Peter points out, it's gonna also signal that this is an age of salvation. It's almost like saying, hey, you can chase the verses about the prophecy and get focused on that. You can chase the, the things at the end. And by the way, we get caught up in both of them. We kind of like, oh man, I got to understand all that. And there's parts of it's a mystery that we don't completely understand. And then some get real caught up in the events on the end and understanding and and seeing all with that. Both of them will be key in this age, beginning and end. You know what's supposed to happen during all of it? Look at the last verse of the prophecy. And it shall come about that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want the main thing of this age? That's the main thing. And so, you know, as church, we can be tempted to chase all these things about prophecies and, and who has it and who doesn't. We can be real tempted to chase things about end time events and what will happen in the sky and what does that mean in that. There's a part of it, I believe all of these things happen, happen and will happen, but I don't wanna chase those to the point that I lose the main thing. In fact, Peter then immediately turns and he says, hey, let me describe to you the main thing. And you've got it in your notes there. We won't read through his whole sermon. But I would encourage you, this is a great section of scripture. If you just wanna see a great gospel presentation about Jesus. Notice Peter doesn't get caught up in the other parts of Joel's prophecy. He doesn't get caught up in, man, you're seeing strange stuff and we're seeing strange stuff and all that. He just assumes, man, these are things that God's working in. The rest of this passage, you know what Jesus, what Peter gets caught up in? Presenting Jesus. 
telling them about Jesus. Because God poured out his spirit that they would be witnesses. And he says, you know what I'm gonna do? I got a big crowd here, I'm gonna witness. And if you look at this, he tells, hey, this is what you need to know. The first thing you need to know is about the life of Jesus. And so in verse 22, he says, hey, you guys know it. Jesus came and did miracles like no one else. Jesus did things that nobody could explain. And this crowd knew it. I mean, this is only 50 days after Jesus had been crucified. And, and so whether they believed in resurrection or not, no one could deny Jesus did miracles like no one else. In fact, notice Jesus critics, you, know, you ever, when you read through the gospels, Jesus critics, they never deny that he did miracles. You'll, you'll never see any of them go, oh, he didn't really do that. They, they have to admit he did it. Now, you know what they did? They said, well, he did it through the power of Satan. They won't give him the credit. They won't say he's God, but everyone knew Jesus lived a life like no one else. And so Peter, he only spends one verse on it. He goes, you guys know it. You know about Jesus' life. And, and then he spends one verse on the death of Jesus. He died on the cross. He did it because God had planned it, but also out of our own rebellion. He, he combines human sovereignty, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. He combines them both together. And again, I think the reason he only, on his sermon, he only has two verses on these two points is everyone knew it. You knew he lived a life like no one else and you know he was crucified. You know he died on a cross. I mean, it's just 50 days ago when you, most of you were in town, you witnessed it. Now he turns to the part that maybe you don't know, the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter spends some time here. In fact, he goes back and he quotes David. He says, man, we got this Davidic prophecy. It points to the fact that Jesus was gonna be resurrected. In fact, you can only explain it now in light of Jesus' resurrection because he's explaining to an audience here that knew those Old Testament passages. He says, what do you do with that? In fact, I love his point. He goes, and we know where David was buried. As great as David is, we know he was buried. We know where he is. And he kind of looks at him and says, where's Jesus? Where's his grave? Where's his body? And the final part of the passage, he explains the exaltation of Jesus. And, and sometimes we leave this off our presentation, but they consider it really important. Not only did he live, not only did he die, not only was he resurrected, guess what? He's ruling on his throne right now. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He's the Christ who paid for our debt and he's the Lord who rules on his throne. As you look at this, I love how he ends it. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God, God has made him the one, he's the Lord, he's on his throne, he's the king, he's the Christ, he's the savior. And then he leaves them with this point of tension, this Jesus whom you crucified. You killed him to get rid of him. And God has not only validated him, he's ruling on the throne. He purposely leaves it at this place of tension. He purposely leaves at this point. So if they cry out to him, what do we do with this? 
What, what do we do with what we're seeing here, this, this presentation? What do we do with what we know about Jesus' life? What do we do with it? And so Peter turns and he tells them what to do. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He says, you know what you need to do? First, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin, turn to Christ. That's what repentance means. Sometimes we, we can kind of get put off by it or it feels like an old fashioned word. It's just a clear word. It, it talks about you're doing a 180 in your life. And, and so what it means in repentance is you're coming to God and you're recognizing, man, I am sinner. And I'm not right with God for whatever reason. Some people come to that place because they thought religion was gonna be enough and they realize religion won't fix what I feel, what I know is true about me. Some come to that place, they've been far from God for their whole life. In fact, they hadn't even believed in God. And, and so, man, even the existence of it or the miracles of it has just been outside of their categories. Some come to that place out of brokenness in life. Man, you're so acquainted with why it's not working. It doesn't matter how you got there. What Peter says is everyone, everyone has to come to this place and you repent. And so the first part of that 180 is coming to God and going, yeah, this is not working. And so I believe in you, Jesus, as my savior. But the second part of that 180, it's not just coming to that place because sometimes we just go, hey, come to that place. The second part of the 180 is you start following him as Lord. That's why the gospel boils down to that when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is both Christ and Lord, that he's both the savior who paid for my sin, but he's also the Lord that I'm gonna follow. And so Peter says, everyone needs to come to that place of repentance. Now, he also emphasizes in this baptism, that you identify with Christ's death and resurrection. So if you've ever seen a baptism here over in the water, we'll, we'll say when, when someone's being baptized, we say buried with Christ because you're identifying, man, I died with him. But you're also identifying, I'm walking with him. It's that 180 in action. It's identified that, man, I died with him. I brought my sin. I brought and sought forgiveness. He forgave me of all my sin. But also, man, I'm walking with Christ. I'm following him as Lord. Both of those things are true. Now, one side note for a second, because depending on your background, I told you this passage had a lot of theological places. Some backgrounds, you may have come from a church that told you, unless you get baptized, you're not a Christian. Uh, and this is usually the verse they would quote, because Peter does link these things together so strongly. He, he links the repentance and the baptism and, and the coming of the spirit. Now, here's what I would say on that. If this was the only verse we had, you could make that case. And this is why you always wanna be careful when you're reading through the Bible. You wanna let the Bible interpret the Bible because you'll come to places you go, hmm, is that truly the case? But you don't ever want the exception to interpret for the whole. You wanna look at all the places. And so here's what I encourage is you read through Acts. Every time Peter presents the gospel, does he always link these two together? No, he actually doesn't. In fact, there's several places he just presents a gospel and it's about coming to that place of repentance and coming to Christ and you'll be saved. Paul in particular, 
He, over and over again, if you'll confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. If repentance or if baptism was necessary to be a Christian, don't you think God would put it in the gospel every time he presented it? Don't you think, let's make this absolutely clear? He doesn't though. And so that's why I don't believe you have to be baptized to be a Christian. Now, let me say on the flip side of it though, the reason Peter does link it, it's an important act of obedience for Christians. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts, you don't see people who come to Christ who don't get baptized. It's just a key part of it. And that's why I would encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian. So don't sit here today because people will panic and go, am I not a Christian because I'm not baptized? No, you're a Christian. Holy Spirit's coming to your life. You're baptized in him. You've received the seal of the Holy Spirit. But as a Christian, God calls you to be baptized. Scripture calls you to it. And and I know some of you kind of go, well, Tim, that's kind of uncomfortable. And and it is, it may be uncomfortable for you. Uh, Let me remind you, you've proclaimed Jesus as Christ and Lord. So if you've done that 180, that means, hey, Jesus, I'm gonna do what you call me to do the rest of my life. And so in the book of Acts, you see believers, man, when they did that 180, when they came to that place of repentance and received salvation, they said, oh, okay, what did Jesus call his followers to do? Oh, he called them to be baptized. Yep, I'll do it. I'll be on it. I would encourage you, we offer baptism classes from time to time. I know we've got one coming up in a few weeks here. And so I would encourage you, if you've never been baptized, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, go by the hub. You can get some information or give us your name if you want to sign up for the class to learn more about it. Because we want to be obedient to what he's called us to. You look at the very end of Peter's sermon, what happened? What happened? The result of it. So those who received his word were baptized. They followed up. And there was added that day 3,000 souls. Isn't that awesome? I mean, this group that has been this little group that they've got, you know, 120 of them that were in this upper room that received this promise. They've been scrutinized in Jerusalem. They've been scoffed at. They've been scared. They've been doubted. They've been lied about. And then the Holy Spirit comes and they suddenly have the power that after the first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. You know what I would call that? I'd call it harvest. I'd call it God doing what he said he was gonna do. God who uniquely set it up that these people for over a millennium have celebrated this festival of harvest. God who uniquely did what only he could do in the life and the death and the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. God who told his disciples, I'm gonna give you a power through the Holy Spirit that is so beyond you and you're gonna be my witnesses and it's gonna come at the time of harvest. And so if you take nothing else from Acts 2, What's the main thing? It's harvest. Why'd the spirit come? So that we could be witnesses and be a part of the harvest. And guys, from that day to the last day, the very last day, that will be our purpose. And I I would just encourage you and just 
hope you know, because a key thing that motivates us as a church, a key thing that we're doing, what we put all of our plans around is we want to be a part of the harvest. We can do a lot of great things as a church. And I love it. I love the ministries of this place. I love being able to worship together. I love being able to teach you guys. I love that we have shepherds who care. I love that we have ministries that meet all different seasons of life. I love all of those things. But you know what the main thing over all those things has to be? We have to be about witnessing, being witnesses, pointing people to Jesus. You lose the main thing, you can have a lot of great things, but it's not the main thing. And, and so that principle, it's on the heartbeat. When we come together as an elder board as pray, as we get together as staff and we pray and we pray about the future, as we are planning with it, all of that is a desire to make sure that stays the main thing. As we do this, this breakthrough that we've been a part of, the whole purpose of it is, but whether it's facilities, whether it's training, whether it's mobilizing, is how do we reach the ends of the earth who came to us? A lot like that day in Pentecost, when God brought all those people from all over the planet and they were in that unique place to be able to share, we live in that place. And so all of it is around, how do we keep that the main thing? How do we keep reaching those who need to be a part of that harvest? And I would say whether it's through breakthrough, whether it's through our outreach. Um, if you're new to venture, you may not realize we have a whole outreach fund. And that whole fund, all of it is how do we reach out? How do we reach our local community? But also how do we reach our global community? How do we keep sending out missionaries who are part of, but even more, how do we come alongside nationals who are part of a harvest where they are, whether it's in India, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Ethiopia, whether it's in Mexico, we are seeing what's described in this passage, whether you realize or not, those kind of harvests are happening in those countries. And so we take money on our budget and we go, yes, how do we pour fuel on that fire? How do we get to be a part of that? And so if you're new here, you, you may be confused to look at it because there's a general fund that supports all that we do as a church. We have breakthrough that many of us have stepped out by faith and we are sacrificing because we so want to see that unleashed. And then we also have an outreach fund. And, and that fund, I, I mean, it's a little over 2 million every year. We used to do it like with pledge cards and we did what we were gonna do based on what you pledged. Last year, we just felt as an elder board, we need to step out by faith. Let's not wait for a pledge. Let's just set a budget and give it. And trust you guys have the same heartbeat and you'll give toward it. And so if you're here, because I, sometimes I get asked from time to time of people who go, man, how do I support missions or how to support outreach? If you go, you can see on the drop down, there's outreach budget that's right there. And, and I'd encourage you, if you don't know what's happening in these regions, man, nothing will fuel your faith more than go discover it. Go find out about these places because God's moving in these places. And we just love being a part of it. Guys, as we look at this, here's what I would encourage you. Every age is a little different. We won't see an outpouring. I doubt there'll ever be a Sunday where you're gonna see tongues of fire over people's heads here because that was unique in that time. Let me tell you what crosses every time. Being a witness for Jesus Christ. I love the quote by Billy Graham. He says, every generation is strategic. We're not responsible for the past generation. We cannot bear full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age 
and take advantage of our opportunities. And so I, I would just challenge you. You've heard how we're trying to do this as a church. How are you doing it in your life? Would, would this be the, the guiding principle? Would this be the main thing in all you do? Do you work when you go to work? Do you do it with a mindset, man, I am a witness for Jesus. And my work is part of that witness. The, the way you conduct your family, the way you live your marriage, the way you interact with your friends and your neighbors. Are, are you always thinking, okay, Man, I love all these parts of this relationship, but you know what the main thing is? I am a witness for Christ in this. The way you give, does it reflect? Man, this is a main thing, part of my life. The way you share the good news, that when those moments come up like Peter had, are you prepared to walk people through what Christ has done and what he did in your life? Guys, I love that the spirit came, but let us never forget why he came and what was promised in it and what's the main thing. Will you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for just this unbelievable day in human history, unbelievable day where you launched your church. And Lord, we love the Holy Spirit. We love what he does in our life. Lord, I thank you for the spiritual gifts and all the expressions of it. I thank you that they are active today. Lord, I thank you for the way he empowers our worship. I thank you for the way he comforts us. I thank you for the way he, he comes alongside of us as a paraclete to give us the encouragement and help we need. Lord, I thank you for all of his ministry. But may we never forget what you told us he will come and we will have power to be witnesses. Lord, I, I pray as a church adventure, would you help us keep the main thing, the main thing? As individuals who are part of your church, could it govern our life? Could it govern how we see the world? Could it be key to all that we do? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.